Fellow students, if you would be so kind to turn to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to continue um, in the, um, Paul's epistle. Let me just kind of give you a little context. Paul has been uh, commanded and commissioned by God to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. That's his specific calling to the Gentiles. And he takes three missionary tours to complete this calling. Uh, he, on his second missionary tour, he came to the city of Corinth, which is uh, in the Peloponnesian Peninsula, uh, down southeast, west of Athens. He founded the church there. He spent 18 months in Corinth, uh, founding the church and discipling these believers. He came to Corinth probably in the spring of AD 52, 52 AD, stayed there until the fall of AD 53. So about a year and a half in Corinth. He went back to Jerusalem to finish his second missionary tour and then began his third missionary tour about a year later. He came to Ephesus in, in the fall, uh, probably of AD 54, and spent three years there through September, October of 57. So he spent a year and a half in Corinth, three years in the city of Ephesus. Rob's going to give you a picture of these two uh, particular locations, along with a couple of other cities where Paul spent some time in ministry. He spent more time in these two cities than any other place. Uh, like Corinth, Ephesus was a port city. It had a superb harbor. That harbor is now all uh, silted in. The Caestor River has brought enough silt off from the uh, Anatolian Peninsula. Uh, the city of Ephesus currently is about 12 to 13 miles inland. That's how much silt has come in over the last uh, several centuries. But in Paul's day, there was a thriving port in the city of Ephesus. Both Corinth and Ephesus were very strategic cities for military and economic reasons. Corinth had a population of around 100,000. Uh, Ephesus had a population between 200 and 250,000. Just to give you some perspective, Rome was the largest city in the empire, about a million people. Alexandria, Egypt, uh, in the delta of, um, uh, of Egypt was about 600,000. Antioch was probably 400,000. Ephesus was probably the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, about a quarter million people. Paul went to both these cities because they were very strategic. They were metropolitan areas. They had very large population centers. But most importantly, they were very well connected by the Roman road system through the empire. Paul wanted to bring the gospel to them because it could very easily then travel throughout the empire. So it was very strategic. Now, Corinth was a port city, and we've talked about the geography of Corinth in past lessons. It had a very highly transitory population. Lots and lots and lots of sailors, merchants, and tradespeople came through the city. And if you know anything about urban history, transitory populations tend to create a lot of problem with vice. I'm sure what they said in Corinth, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Just like we say about... Vegas, five hours uh, east of here. What goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. The truth of it is Corinth was a very contemporary city to what we have today. Really, really, really bad behavior in Corinth was so common that it had become normal. How many of you are very accustomed to really, really bad behavior? Do you see really, really bad behavior on television? Do you read it on the news flow? Some of you are looking at me and going, I don't see any of that, Brad. Yeah, really bad behavior is becoming normal, and that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. The believers in this church were struggling not to live like the world they were a part of. As a matter of fact, most of them had come out of that world, but instead of rejecting the behavior, they just drugged their sinful behavior into the church. 
So there wasn't a lot of change between the church and them. And as you can imagine, this church had a lot of problems. The first six chapters of, of this letter, Paul is addressing those problems. And they were very, very proud. They were very self-centered. That's what the congregation at Corinth was. They were quarreling a lot. There was a lot of egos involved and there was a lot of division. There was a lot of uh, self-righteousness and it was really fracturing the church. My way is better than your way and my leader is smarter than your leader and your mama and you know the drill. So it was really destroying their love for each other. It was really destroying their witness to the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth also had some unique problems. It contained the city of Aphrodite, which was the Greek goddess of love. And of course, sex has always been a real profitable business. But in Corinth, it was a major economic business in the city of Corinth. Prostitution was epidemic uh, in Corinth and throughout the empire, as a matter of fact. Uh, Corinth was a city that people visited specifically to participate uh, in prostitution. Uh, so it had a very, very uh, reputation throughout the empire uh, as a very libertine city at that point in time. Now, the, the Corinthian church had not so much rejected their past sexual sins. They just brought them into the church. And they didn't honor God, so they didn't honor each other. Paul mentions in, in uh, the last chapter of verse 6, there was a lot of lawsuits going on. Christians were suing each other in court to try and get their rights. And so it was a big mess. So Paul is in Ephesus now. And a delegation comes from Corinth and says, we've got trouble in River City and we need some help. So this letter, 1 Corinthians, is written back to the church in Corinth while Paul was in Ephesus to try and straighten them out at that point in time to correct the situation. So the first six chapters of Corinth, he's really saying, stop being divided. Stop your arrogance and your pride and be unified. Your family, treat each other like family. Chapters 7 through 16 are really Paul's responses to a whole series of questions that the Corinthians had written. So they'd written them a lot of questions about various topics. And so you're going to see today that Paul, in chapter 7, is, is going to write to them in response to their questions about sexuality and marriage. Now just to give you some historical context, the Greco-Roman world of the Roman Empire had a very distorted view of marriage and in a particularly low view of women. Uh, prostitution was epidemic throughout Greek life, not just in Corinth, but especially in Corinth, right? But throughout the world. Demosthenes, he was a Greek historian, he wrote that we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. Courtesan is a, a highbrow word for prostitute. We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. You know, she's, not, she's supposed to make sure that the household is kept intact and she promises not to sell his Porsche while he's out philandering around, right? That's the viewpoint of marriage and women in this particular culture. Matter of fact, family life throughout the Roman Empire was pretty well destroyed. Seneca was one of their great historians and he says, quote, women were married in order to be divorced and divorced in order to be married. For example, in the city of Rome, many, many, many families didn't even date the years by the year. They dated the years by the husband of that year. So new year, new husband. Some of these folks were married eight, nine, 10 times. 
they kind of set the track record there for Elizabeth Taylor, which was, it was literally just serial monogamy. One spouse at a time, I'm faithful to one at a time, but there's always a new one, right? Every year, every two years, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a frequency of marriage that makes marriage itself meaningless. They were destroying the purpose of marriage, God's purpose for marriage for sure. Now, the Jews criticized the Gentiles' view of marriage, but their view of women didn't really transform you or inspire you. They didn't honor women or marriage much better. The Jewish synagogue prayer book. This is the prayer book that the Jewish male would use in the temple every day. And it had a prayer that they prayed every day. I thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast not made me a Gentile dog nor a woman. Mankind is always distorted to some degree God's design for family and marriage, but the Corinthians church had managed to distort it more than most. We don't know the exact questions they asked Paul about marriage, but we can infer some of that by looking at Paul's answers. We, actually, we can get some insight into the state of their own marriages by looking at what Paul wrote back. So <clears throat> the thought process here is you can't diagnose what's abnormal until you understand what's normal, right? You've got to have a model. In order to understand what was wrong with the Corinthians' understanding of marriage, what we need to do is go back to God's original design for marriage. And God made it very, very clear. In Genesis, he said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. God designed the need for companionship into human DNA. God made people, to one degree or another, to be social, to need and desire relationships with others, and marriage was God's design to be the ultimate fulfillment of that need for human companionship. Actually, it was designed by God to be an equal partnership where two people form into a new unit that we call one flesh, actually, that God called one flesh. So when you read scripture, God makes it extremely clear that marriage was not just designed for procreation, but also for pleasure. The book of Deuteronomy commands that following their wedding, a man is forbidden to enroll in military service for one year so that he can stay at home and give his wife sexual pleasure. I like that command. Just saying. So those of you that are a little uncomfortable with this, I didn't write this. I'm just telling you what God said, okay? We, our view of marital sexuality is colored. Now I'm off top, I'm off script here. It's colored by our culture. You must understand that Satan wants to fog you on this. Satan wants to distort your view of what God designed and we need to go back to the blueprint that God wrote to get a clear picture. Proverbs 5.18 says, let your fountain be blessed. This is Solomon describing and ascribing virtue to monogamy. Solomon is now preaching on monogamy. Solomon, right? And you're saying, practice what you preach, O wisest man in the world. But he speaks truth here. He's speaking to the, to the male and he says, don't engage in adultery. Don't be foolish. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. So the Bible reveals that marital sex is designed for delight and engineered for enjoyment. Now, we're not exactly sure what was going on in the Corinthian church, but we have some clues. We're going to take some very good looks at what Paul wrote back. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote. Now, that's the cue phrase that says Paul's now responding to the question they asked. And this little phrase is going to show up from chapter 7 to 16 about a variety of topics. He says, now, concerning about the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, this remember, this is a church that had a member, a church member who was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And instead of disciplining and removing this member from fellowship, the Corinthian church was very proud of their open-mindedness and their tolerance and their large view of things. And they tolerated this or were even proud of it, how tolerant and open-minded they were. Now, some members of the Corinthian church had seen so much sexual sin that they decided that an ascetic life was better. If sexual excess is ruinous, then maybe no sex at all is better. In other words, self-denial is superior to sexual expression, and celibacy is a higher state of spirituality than sexuality. So you have extreme sexual excess on one side, and then some members of the church said no sex at all is better. And so Paul is going to write to them about God's design for that. Now this phrase, it is good not to touch a woman, is probably not Paul's phrase. It's very likely a very common saying used in that culture. The New International Version, you may have that, translates, it is good not to marry. I think that's a mistranslation, but if that's accurate, then Paul is saying that to remain unmarried is an honorable state in God's eyes. Both singleness and marriage are acceptable to God as legitimate choices. We live in a culture where, for the first time in our history, more people are, are close to half of the population is living alone. But we live in a culture historically that, I, I don't want to say honors marriage, because we don't honor marriage given our divorce rate, but we historically have viewed singleness as abnormal. That is not biblical. Singleness is perfectly normal, it's a perfectly honorable state, and it's a state where God may call some people to function in according to his plan. We're going to get into that more later. However, in antiquity, the phrase not to touch a woman never refers to marriage. It always refers to sexual intercourse. So this phrase had probably been adopted by these Corinthian aesthetics who were quoting and saying, no sex is better than sex, right? It reflected their belief that sexual abstinence, even in marriage, was a spiritually superior state. And Paul is going to write and correct that. Throughout history, there are some people who have advocated that celibacy is, of course, a, a superior a spiritual state. The entire monastic movement viewed sexuality as defiling and distracting from devotion to God. I'll quote you Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is one of the most brilliant medieval theologians of the Middle Ages, but this wasn't one of his best statements, just saying. Here's what he says. Sexuality is always evil. Because in it... My man. 
That's dumb, right? It gets worse. Sexuality is always evil because there is in it an excess of pleasure. So that in the act, it is impossible to contemplate God. You've heard the story about the new monk comes to a monastery, talks to the father, the abbot. He says, I know I have to make the vow of celibacy. He says, are you sure? He says, oh, it's in the ancient scripts. Celibacy is advocated in scripture. Young monk says, where, where exactly? The, the abbot says, well, I'm going to go find out. So he disappears and he's gone for two, three days. Finally, the young monk goes down into the, you know, the cellars where all the manuscripts are, and he finds the father abbot leaning over a manuscript, weeping, bawling. His guy's convulsing with sobs. And the young monk comes up to him and says, Father, what's wrong? And he says, it's not celibate, it's celebrate. That's pretty sad mistranslation, right? <laughs> the point is God did not create marital sexual pleasure to distract people from worshiping. As a matter of fact, marital sex was designed to draw people to God. God designed sex to be intensely pleasurable. I got a number of reasons why. The first one is, do you want a little taste of heaven? You want a little taste of heaven. Marriage is designed to be a little taste of heaven on earth where we have intimacy and oneness and openness and acceptance and no barriers and lies, etc. no hiding like Adam and Eve before the fall. So sex is good because God is good. Why would we be surprised that a good God gives us something that is not good? What's interesting is Paul is currently single and he's now giving some pretty explicit marital advice. It's quite possible that Paul was once married. His wife had died. She might have deserted him due to his faith. We feel he might have been married because it was a huge stigma for a Jewish male not to be married. The Jews had a tradition that says a Jew who has no wife is not a man. Now that's pretty direct. Furthermore, at one point in time, Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling body. In order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. That was part of the territory. So there's some speculation about whether Paul was married or not. Go on to verse 2. After, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Here's the principle. Everyone has an exclusive covenant duty to sexually please their own spouse. Write it down. Don't look at me like it's dirty. Write it down. Everyone has, and you're going to remember this because you're going to quote it to your spouse. Everyone has an exclusive covenant duty to sexually please their own spouse. These verses contain three couplets that distress the balance between pleasure and duty. Paul understands human nature pretty well here, right? He understands that for most people, sexual desire is very, very powerful and must be managed carefully. And he says, each man is to have his own wife and each wife is to have her own husband. 
So sexual fulfillment takes place in the context of what? Monogamous marriage, not polygamy. It's one man, one woman for a lifetime. It's not Adam, Eve, and Carol. It's not Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve only, right? As Bob Mueller says, for better, for worse, for keeps, right? Marriages for a lifetime. Now, in the Roman Empire, they didn't view marriage that way. Women were viewed as property. They were chattel. They were the workhorses of marriage. Women had all the responsibilities. The husbands had all the privileges. That's not God's design. In God's design, loving monogamy, where a husband and wife love, serve, and delight each other. That's God's plan. Sex is the visible picture of the two becoming one flesh, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Most people in our culture experience sex just as a physical union, right? The coming together of two bodies. You can also experience marital sex as an emotional union, the coming together of two personalities. On the highest level, sex is a union of two spirits. Now, I'm going to lay this one on and you tell me what you think. If that's true, and I believe it is true, spirit-filled Christians should experience the highest level of intimacy in marital sex. Don't buy the lie that God, God does not want you to experience pleasure. Where does that lie come from? Satan's been running that garbage ever since the Garden of Eden. What did he say to Eve? Has God said, you know, if God really wanted your pleasure, he would let you eat the fruit. You have the entire universe at your disposal, and you can't have one fruit, so therefore God's not a good God. And she bought it. She was deceived. Adam bought it, both eyes open. He knew it was alive, but he did it anyway, because he wanted to be with his wife, right? You give him some credit, right? So Satan's been telling the human race that God's a killjoy. God says, I created marital sex for your delight and your pleasure. I know that you want happiness, but I, God, alone know what you really need in order to be happy. So I'm going to write these guidelines down for you. Paul says, because of immorality. So what he's saying is a healthy sex life between spouses is a vaccine against temptation and immorality. That's not a guarantee, but it helps. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, how many wives did he have? Eight. Already eight. You would think eight would be enough? Just a thought. Yeah, one would be plenty. One is God's design, right? The point is, lust has no limits apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul is basically telling these Corinthians, sexual abstinence in a marriage does not help you resist temptation. It only inflames it. Stop it. Now, having said that, you don't get married just to avoid immorality. That's a pretty low bar for marriage. God designed marriage, among other things, to reveal himself to humanity. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. He says the intimate relationship between husband and wife is a picture of what? The intimate relationship between Jesus Christ and us his church at that point. Marriage makes it possible for two people to serve God together for a lifetime, and it also makes possible for the most intimate love that humans can know in this life. Now, Paul does something surprising. The Corinthian ascetics, 
the ones who have reacted to all the sexual excess and are promoting celibacy, they're looking at Paul and they're going, he's going to agree with us. He's single. He's celibate. Of course our way is superior. Paul's going to surprise him. He now commands an active sex life in marriage. He says that sex is not only a right, but it's a responsibility. It's not only a privilege, but it's an obligation for each marriage partner. Paul says God's design for marriage is monogamous, but it has exclusive sexual rights and responsibilities for each mate. Both spouses have obligations as well as opportunities. And Paul uses the word duty. I find that interesting. How often have you, how often do you put the word duty and sex in the same sentence? It's not generally something we do. Most of the time, duty means what? Like going to work, you know? It's mandatory. It's drudgery. Cleaning the toilet. That's a duty, right? Or whatever. Taking the garbage out, whatever it happens to be. Something unpleasant. God says you owe your spouse a sexual duty. It's a delightful duty, but it's a duty, right? Marital sex is an I get to activity, not a I got to activity. Just saying. So, this is going to surprise some of you. Most of you it won't surprise. Regular sexual activity with your spouse is what you signed up for when you said I do. Because marital sex is never about you. <gasps> it's always about pleasing your spouse, right? It's the opposite of what our culture says. Is our culture selfish? Yes. Our culture is very selfish, and they're sexually selfish too. What I want, when I want it, etc., etc. Marriage is about becoming a servant to your spouse, including in the arena of sexual satisfaction. Paul says, when you promised I do, you signed over authority of your body to your spouse. Wow. How are you feeling about that? You buy that? Paul says, you don't have authority over your spouse. Your, your body, your spouse has authority over your body. Well, let me back up a little bit. Who created you? So he owns you already, right? By right of creation. Who redeemed you? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ owns you by right of redemption because he paid for your sins on the cross. Who lives in you? The Holy Spirit lives in you. So he owns you by right of possession. And your spouse has authority over your body by right of covenant and consecration. That's not something that our culture is comfortable with because our culture is all about me, not all about serving my spouse. Sex is never something you demand from your spouse. It's not something you command. That's selfishness. And marital sex is a mutual self-giving to each other for each other's pleasure. Your body is a gift that you give to your spouse to honor, serve, and pleasure them, right? So mutual submission is the key here. One of the things Paul says is take care of your body because it impacts other people, especially your spouse. They got to live with it. Right? How many of you took better care of your body when you were courting your spouse than you do now that you sleep with them? Now, I'm being pretty direct here, okay? I'm just, but I love you. So I'm, take care of your body. Your spouse has to live with it. For better or worse. I'm not going to ask the spouses to say anything, right? 
So it's not my passions that matters, it's what pleases my spouse that matters. Now, if you want to know what pleases your spouse, I got some clues for you. A three-letter word, A-S-K. Ask. How, you know, the most intimate four-letter word in the marriage is T-A-L-K. Talk. Talk. Talk before you touch. Write it down. Don't look at me like I got three heads. Talk before you touch. Talk before you touch. Is that hard? I know some of you don't have any words. You'll find some. Believe me, you'll find some. The natural byproduct of serving each other's needs is that your own needs get met in the process. See, the world says self-centeredness leads to self-fulfillment, and God's plan is exactly the opposite. Servanthood leads to self-fulfillment. We're just happy to be talking about the arena of sexuality and the area of servanthood, but the concept of servanthood bleeds throughout our entire life. Married, single, doesn't matter. Verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's the principle. Sexual abstinence in a marriage must be mutual, temporary, and done only out of spiritual necessity. Sexual abstinence in a marriage must be mutual, temporary, and done only out of spiritual necessity. Paul gives them a direct command. Stop depriving each other. It seems clear that some of these spouses in this Corinthian church had been withholding sex from their spouse in the name of greater spirituality. And the word deprive here means rob. It means to defraud. It means to steal. You are stealing from your spouse what is rightfully theirs at that point in time. It's always wrong to use sin as a tool, sex as a tool, to manipulate your spouse's behavior because it was never designed as a weapon even for spiritual reasons. Who wants to use sex as a weapon to separate you? Satan wants to use sex to divide us. God gave it us as a gift to deepen our relationship with each other. Remember that Satan is a liar. He will always try and twist God's gifts into something that will harm and not help. So Paul says the only time sexual activity can be curtailed in a marriage is by mutual consent for a limited period of time and for the purpose of urgent and intense prayer. This doesn't mean normal praying. This probably means fasting with praying. It means an unusual situation. Now, Paul doesn't get into there are medical conditions, there's pregnancy, there's childbirth, there's illness, there's lots of things that can influence our sexual relationship with our spouses. Paul's talking about spiritual reasons here at that point in time. So don't set your spouse up for temptation by practicing abstinence in the relationship. Does that make sense? You can talk back to me. You're, you're looking at me like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're talking about sex in church. Why wouldn't we? Who created it? God's a good God. He wants us to be happy. He just knows how we are to be happy. Abstinence in a marriage is not evidence of self-control. It is not evidence in a marriage. It's obviously required outside of marriage. Verse 6. But this I say by way of concession, not as command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, 
Each man has his own gift from God, each one in this manner and another in that. Here's the principle. God calls some to marry and others to remain single depending on his plan for their lives. God calls some to marry and others to remain single depending on his plan for their lives. Paul says, look, God's mission for me as a traveling missionary involves being single and celibate. He has a lifestyle that probably wouldn't work too well for marriage, right? Because he's never home. We have a number of other people who've done that. I guarantee you Ruth Bell Graham really had to be the workhorse in that marriage because Billy was gone. He was gone for good reasons. He was bringing the gospel to the world, but she's the one who parented those kids. A lot of work, a lot of work. George uh, Whitfield was married, but he was almost never home. And John Wesley had a horrible marriage. I mean, he should have never got married at all. She was abusive because she was bigger than he was, so it didn't work out too well. So God calls some people to be single, some people to be married. One state is not better than others. Paul's happy being single. He wishes others would be happy and content as he is. But he understands that being a single celibate person is a gift from God, just like being married is a gift from God. Celibacy is not a spiritual gift any more than marriage is, like teaching or administration, but it's a divine enabling to control your sexual desires in a way that honors God. Most people are designed for marriage. Not all. Some people are designed for singleness. Both states are from God. Paul was single, Jesus was single, lots and lots of people. You, are, you can be a whole person and be single, and being married is not going to fix your brokenness. And being married certainly won't fix your loneliness. And if you're a nasty person, marriage will not help. Just saying, Jesus will help. So Jesus said some people, had, Jesus used the word, he said, some people are eunuchs by God, because of God. Some people have been made by eunuchs by others, and some people have chosen to make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. What that means is some people have been gifted by God to remain single, celibate, and satisfied. That's God's call on their life. That's Paul. In ancient times, we actually had eunuchs being made because people practiced uh, castration. It was pretty brutal. And lastly, some people have been called to a ministry that just does not work with marriage. They're on the road, they're accomplishing things for the kingdom of God, and they want to be free and single-minded to pursue Jesus without distraction. So when you have single friends, that is not abnormal, that is not a disease, that is normal. All of you were single before you were married. Yes? All of us in this room will either die before our spouse and go to heaven, or we will be single because we're left. Yes? yes? You and I need to be comfortable in our own skin with Jesus and us. Our spouse is not going to fix those things. Jesus fixes those things, whatever they happen to be that we're dealing with at that point in time. So my plea is many, 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 many people are single. Many, we have many, many friends that are single. They are whole people as they are right now. Right now, they don't need to change anything to be a whole person. Marriage does not fix things. Marriage complicates your life. You have twice as many problems and half the time. And if you have children, you have about 10% of the time, right? So 
Paul, and I'm agreeing with him at this point in time, both those states come from God depending on his plan for your life. Be content in either case. Verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. So Paul, when he talks about unmarrieds, he's talking about those who are single by divorce, those who are single, who have never married, and those who are widows or widowers been made single by death. Paul says it's a good state he's in. He's hoping that they will be content in the state they're in. But if he says if sexual self-control is too difficult, then get married because don't let your sexual passion control you. That takes your mind off Jesus and dominates your life. I'll give you a real practical setup here. I think long engagements are a setup for a loss of self-control. People get married, oh, I'm gonna get, we're going to get engaged for two years. You can't keep your hands off your fiancé for two years. I don't care who you are, right? Unless you're 200 miles away or 1,000 miles away. Get engaged long enough to do the wedding, get married. If you have children and they want to get engaged, get engaged long enough to plan the wedding and get, do the wedding. Does that make sense? No? If you pray about it, don't lay my word for it. You ask God about it. Okay? Just ask the Lord about it. Almost every 25-year-old know that I know is not going to be engaged for two or three years. The temptations are just way great. Verse 10. But to the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, verse 11, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, Jesus, while he was on earth, forbids divorce except for adultery. Paul reiterates that, but he says that if the divorce takes place, both spouses, he's talking about Christians now, should remain single or reconcile with the former spouses. This is not a treatise on divorce and remarriage. Paul's not talking about that here. By the way, we did that topic last March when we studied Matthew, so it's probably on the tape. So this is, Paul says this as a sideline, agreeing with what the Lord says. Verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, which means the Lord didn't refer to this in scripture. Paul has the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, for God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Here's the principle. God works through Christian spouses to bless non-Christian spouses. He also works through Christian spouses to bless Christian spouses. But here the principle is God works through Christian spouses to bless non-Christian spouses. So ask God to work through you. Now that last phrase is going to take courage. When you ask God to work through you, you are saying, God, I am available for you to do through me what you choose in relationship to my spouse. That is easier said than done because God will 
by his grace, ask us to do things that only he can do through his power. So Jesus' comments on married were for spouses who were either Jews or Christians. In other words, they shared the same faith. All the comments Jesus made on marriage or divorce assumed that the husband and wife shared the same faith. Paul is addressing what to do when you have a spiritually mixed marriage. A Christian is forbidden to marry a non-Christian. Marion and I are both marriage family child therapists, and we both have seen so much grief when that is violated. I know you're in love. I know this person's wonderful. I know that they can come to Christ. You are forbidden to marry someone who's not a Christian. You are unequally yoked. You're pulling the plow in different directions. And I've talked to more and more people who have come back in five, ten years with gray hair and ulcers who said, I wished I would have listened. Paul's talking about you have two people married. One of them comes to faith after the marriage. Then what do you do? Well, some people in this Corinthian church apparently were planning on or had already divorced their non-Christian spouse. Because we're unequally yoked. I can serve Jesus better together if I find me a good Christian partner. Paul says, stop it. Your marriage is before the Lord, whether or not you came to faith before or after. Matter of fact, one of the world's, pagan world's strongest criticisms of the Christian faith is because it was breaking up families. Husbands and wives were married. One of them comes to faith. The one who came to faith said, we're unequally yoked. I can serve God better this way. Or one spouse was busy at church all the time and not at home taking care of the family. So Paul says, if you're married and your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you as a Christian, you stay in that marriage, period. Changing your circumstances is not always God's plan to solve a problem. Changing your circumstances is not always God's way to solve your problem. Most of the time, God wants to change us. But Paul says, if they want to leave, let them go. I mean, don't create conflict. If they choose to leave, let them go. I mean, it's heartbreak, but you're not going to go to court to force them to stay, and it's going to create a lot of conflict, and, and you will not win them to Christ through that conflict. So Paul says, you're free at that point in time. Verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct all the churches. Here's the principle. God's control plus your choices have brought you to where you are today. God's control plus your choices have brought you to where you are today. So submit all future choices to him. Every one of us have made decisions that we regret. And we've made some decisions that we're pretty convinced were all-time brilliant choices. Right? Those choices, under God's sovereignty, have brought you to where you are today including marriage, including work, including vocation, including health. I mean, there's lots and lots of things you could put under that. The last part is, 
Whether or not you've made good choices thus far or bad choices doesn't matter. At this point in time, submit all your future choices to him. Submit all your future choices to him. See, your external circumstances are not nearly as important as living out God's calling in your life regardless of your current circumstances. Matter of fact, all our circumstances are arranged by God to accomplish his purposes in our lives. When we resist God's plan for our life, we're telling him that we know better than him. I know some wonderful single people who desperately want to be married. And they are convinced that if God really loved them, he would bring them a spouse. I know some wonderful married people who desperately want to be single. And they are convinced that if God loved them, he would take away their spouse. And you know them too. You know people right now in both situations like that. Now, they don't have the courage to fess up and tell you that, but that's reality, right? God says, the circumstances you're in, I'm sovereign over. Be content in those circumstances. That doesn't mean you can't pray for a spouse. Although I think praying to get rid of your spouse probably won't work, you know. <laughs> God, I'm going to call Bruno. Can you bring him over and take care of my spouse? God doesn't want to deal with your spouse. God wants to deal with you. Because all problems in marriage are not spousal related. They're me. I'm the problem in the marriage. Do you understand that? Until you get to that point in time, we will always resist what God wants to do with us. We will say, God, if you only changed my circumstances, if you only changed them, then everything would go well. The Lord says, no, it's you I want to change. It's your heart I want to change. I want to make you a servant to your spouse instead of a self-centered little blue, 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 right, with your spouse. So your current state, single, married, etc., is not the issue. The issue is whatever state you're in, are you obedient to where the Lord has you right now? And if that's true, then he will move in his infinite wisdom and his infinite love and take you where he wants you to go. But when we start dictating to the Lord, what we're telling him is, I'm smarter than you are. I know what I need. And your job is to be my Santa Claus and get it done. And God will not honor that because that's rebellion at that point. So we need to rest in his sovereignty regardless of our state. By the way, it doesn't mean praying about your circumstances is wrong. It doesn't mean choosing to change your circumstances is wrong. It means that all our choices need to be submitted to the authority of God's word, right? Godly counsel to prayer and make sure that those choices we make will honor him. Okay. This has been a pretty explicit lesson. Um, thanks for hanging out. But it's important that we understand what God's design for marriage is and not the world's design for marriage. Let me review the, our five points while Tom comes and leads us in prayer and praise. Number one, everyone has an exclusive covenant duty to sexually please their own spouse. Number two, Sexual abstinence and marriage must be mutual, temporary, and done only out of spiritual necessity. 
Number three, God calls some to marry and others to remain single according to his plan for their lives. Are you content in the state you're currently in? Married or single? And it doesn't mean you're not willing to grow or want to grow, but are you content? Number four, God works through Christian spouses to bless both Christian and non-Christian spouses. So ask God to work through you. And last, God's control plus your choices have brought you to where you are today. So submit all future choices to him. This week, we're all going to face choices of various kinds. With our spouses, with our friends, with other Christian family members, etc., etc. The principle of servanthood and looking out for others' benefit operates regardless of marital status. But I think Paul is talking to the Corinthian marriage, Corinthians marriage, because they have a model that is not biblical. As always, the model about our marriage, the model for our singleness, the model for how we live lives as sons and daughters of the king is, comes from God's word and not from the culture. Amen? Okay. We've talked about a lot. Take this home and read it. Decide what you're going to obey. Talk to God about what you're going to disobey. He'll have a little chat with you about your commitments. I'm being real blunt with you because a lot of times we won't say, what do you mean I'm going to tell God what I'm going to disobey? Well, he knows already. Just tell him, right? Say, Lord, I surrender this to you. Now that you know,